Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 92 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about David Hahn, the radioactive Boy Scout. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. On June 26, 1995, suburban housewife Dottie Pease returned to her home in the pleasant Golf Manor neighborhood outside Detroit. As she turned onto Pinto Drive, she was startled to see 11 men swarming across her lawn. Three of the men were wearing hazmat suits, and they were busily using electric saws to dismantle her neighbor's backyard potting shed. As the pieces of the potting shed came off, the men placed them in steel drums marked with radioactive warning logos. A small group of neighbors had gathered to watch the site, and Dottie heard one of them say that he'd awakened one night to see the potting shed emitting an eerie glow. Dottie went into her house and called out to her husband, Dave, there are men in funny suits walking around out here. You've got to do something. Who were the men in funny suits? What were they doing with the potting shed? And who was the radioactive Boy Scout at the center of the incident? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, this is a patrons episode. Yes, every month we ask our patrons what they would like to hear about, and this month they said they wanted to hear the tale of the radioactive Boy Scout. Excellent. I am a scout myself, both uh, as a, I was a kid and as an adult, so I'm very interested in, to, in this yeah. uh, episode. So, how You're are we? Scout master, right? Uh, yeah, I'm a I'm a Cub Scout den leader. And okay. I also help with my girls there. They have a scout troop as well. So uh, we're, we're all invested as a family in scouting. So uh, we'll, okay. we'll see how this goes. So how are we going to get into this mystery today? To understand what Dottie Pease witnessed when she came home in June of 1995, we need to jump back almost a year to the early morning hours of August 31st, 1994 at 2.40 a.m., in the nearby community of Clinton Township, Michigan, a group of police officers responded to a call concerning a suspicious young man who was lurking around a car in a residential neighborhood. When the police got there, they thought he was trying to steal tires from the car. But the young man, a 17-year-old named David Hahn, denied that. He said he was waiting for a friend. The police didn't believe him and decided to search his car. According to author Ken Silverstein, When they opened the trunk, they discovered a toolbox shut with a padlock and sealed with duct tape for good measure. The trunk also contained over 50 foil-wrapped cubes of mysterious gray powder, small disks and cylindrical metal objects, lantern mantles, mercury switches, a clock face, ores, fireworks, vacuum tubes, and assorted chemicals and acids. David also helpfully told them that the padlocked, duct-taped toolbox was radioactive, and the police were immediately alarmed, thinking it might be an atomic bomb. Thus began the mystery of the radioactive Boy Scout. The police promptly took David into custody, and having obtained a car containing what they thought might be an atomic bomb, 
they had the apparently atomic bomb containing car towed to police headquarters, as I guess you do. I guess you do. Uh, Ken Silverstein notes. For reasons that are hard to fathom, Sergeant Joseph Mertz, one of the arresting officers, ordered a car containing what he noted in his report was, quote, a potential improvised explosive device, end quote, to be towed to police headquarters. It probably shouldn't have been done, but we thought that the car had been used in the commission of a crime, Police Chief Al Ernst now says sheepishly. When I came in at 6.30 in the morning, it was already there. The police called in the Michigan State Police Bomb Squad to examine the Pontiac and the State Department of Public Health to supply radiological assistance. The good news the two teams discovered was that David's toolbox was not an atomic bomb. The bad news was that David's trunk did contain radioactive materials, including concentrations of thorium, quote, not found in nature, at least not in Michigan, end quote, and americium. That discovery automatically triggered the Federal Radiological Emergency Response Plan, and state officials soon were embroiled in tense phone consultations with the Department of Energy, the EPA, FBI, and NRC. At this stage in the investigation, the police and the government agencies didn't know what was going on. And David wasn't helping because after they took him into custody, he wisely shut up lest he dig himself in deeper. This was actually smart. You never want to do an interview with the police without a lawyer present. I've done some research on the matter, and it's absolutely astonishing the way you can be hurt by that, even if you're trying to help and you say absolutely nothing false. In the further resources, we'll have a link to a debate between a, a law professor, James Duane, and a police officer where Professor Duane shows why you shouldn't talk to the police. And then to give the other side, the police officer gets up and agrees with him. <laughs> that you shouldn't talk to the police. We'll also have a link to Professor Duane's book, You Have a Right to Remain Innocent, which is devoted to how to protect yourself in such circumstances. In any event, the Michigan police didn't know what was going on, so they had a lot of questions. The truth eventually emerged, and today the major mysteries of the case are basically solved. So as a result, we'll structure this episode a bit differently than most, Instead of giving the background and the theories and then going through them one by one from the faith and reason perspectives, I'll just tell you the story of what happened because David eventually admitted everything. And then at the end, we'll look at the events from the faith perspective. All right. Before we get into that, let's take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Armand P., Damien M., J.M., Dion, and Caleb P., their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So, Jimmy, where do we want to begin? As Julie Andrews says, Let's start at the very beginning. A very good place to start. David Hahn was born on October 30th, 1976 in Royal Oak, Michigan. His father was Ken Hahn, an automotive engineer for General Motors. His mother was named Patty, and she and Ken 
divorced when David was still a toddler. David was thus the product of a broken home. He would spend weekdays in Clinton Township with his father and his father's new wife, Kathy, and he would spend weekends and holidays in Golf Manor with his mother and her mother's new boyfriend, Michael, who was a retired forklift driver. As a young child, David played sports and joined the Boy Scouts. Then, at age 10, something happened that changed the course of his life. His mother's father, his maternal grandfather, who was also a General Motors engineer, gave him a copy of the Golden Book of Chemistry Experiments. Today, used copies of this book sell on Amazon for hundreds of dollars, but I was able to find an inexpensive edition of it on CD so you and your kids can check it out if you like. It's, you know, needless to say, a book of chemistry experiments for children. In any event, reading the book changed David's life and he became obsessed with chemistry. Ken Silverstein writes... David swiftly became immersed and by the age of 12 was digesting his father's college chemistry textbooks without difficulty. When he spent the night at Golf Manor, his mother would often wake to find him asleep on the living room floor, surrounded by open volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica. In his father's house, David set up a laboratory in his small bedroom. He bought beakers, Bunsen burners, test tubes, and other items that are commonly found in a child's chemistry set. David, though, was not conducting typical adolescent experiments. By 14, he had fabricated the explosive nitroglycerin. With a little more practice, he might have been able to do what Doctor Who's companion Ace did in her teenage years and make Nitro 9. Nitro 9. It's just like ordinary nitroglycerin, except he's got a bit more water. Careful you don't drop them. Unfortunately, David's experiments with explosives in his bedroom didn't go as well as hoped. There apparently were multiple explosions which led pockmarks in his bedroom walls, and the carpet was so stained by chemical spills that it had to be ripped out. His father and stepmother therefore demanded that he stop experimenting in the bedroom and only work in the basement. Ken Silverstein says, This was fine with David. Science allowed him to escape into something he was a success at while sublimating a teenager's sense of failure, anger, and embarrassment into some really big explosions. David held a series of after-school jobs at fast food joints, grocery stores, and furniture warehouses, but work was merely a means of financing his experiments. Never an enthusiastic student and always a horrific speller, David fell behind in school. During his junior year at Chippewa Valley High School, he nearly failed state math and reading tests required for graduation though he aced the test in science. David also took to doing experiments at his mother's house on the weekends, but as Sam Key notes in his excellent book on the periodic table, The Disappearing Spoon, His mother soon banished him to the basement, then the backyard shed, which suited him fine. Unlike many budding scientists, though, David didn't seem to get better at chemistry. Once, before a Boy Scout meeting, he dyed his skin orange when a fake tanning chemical he was working on burped and blew up in his face. And in a move only someone ignorant of chemistry would try, he accidentally exploded a container of purified potassium by tamping it with a screwdriver. A bad idea. An ophthalmologist was still digging plastic shards of the container out of his eyes months later. If I were you lot, I'd go for your tea break now. Why? What's in those cans? Nitro 9. We've got eight seconds. Last one back's a gooey mess. Nitro! Everybody, get down! Although David's social awkwardness was apparent to all, he was able to some extent to overcome it. For example, in high school, he was able to find a girlfriend. So go David. Yoo-hoo. But his social awkwardness was still apparent. 
His girlfriend's mother forbade him to talk to her party guests, lest he blurt out unappetizing facts about the food they were eating at the party. He could be there, he could eat, but he couldn't talk to anybody about what they were eating. <laughs> I have a son like that. <laughs> uh-huh. David also got into trouble with other people. At one point, he was caught stealing smoke detectors from the Boy Scout camp where he was staying. He needed these smoke detectors for his experiments. And so remember that because it'll be important later. David was caught stealing smoke detectors for his experiments. What did David's parents think of all of these shenanigans? They were pleased, you know, with his interest in science, but they were also concerned. At one point, his father and stepmother were afraid that he might be using his chemistry set to make and sell drugs. So they decided to check up on him. David had told them that he studied at the public library, so they would randomly show up to see if he was there when he said he would be. And he always was. He was telling the truth. They would find him poring over chemistry books at the library. But because of the explosions at his dad's house, David's stepmother eventually forbade him from experimenting there. So he moved his base of operations to his mom's house. His mother and her forklift driver boyfriend, Michael, were not well-educated, and they trusted in David's intelligence to keep him out of trouble. Ken Silverstein writes, Sure, they thought it was odd that David often wore a gas mask in the shed and would sometimes discard his clothing after working there until two in the morning, but they chalked it up to their own limited education. Michael says that David tried to explain his experiments, but that, quote, what he told me went right over my head, end quote. One thing still sticks out, though. David's potting shed project had something to do with creating energy, he'd say. One of these days we're going to run out of oil. He wanted to do something about that. And this represented a turning point in David's story, the desire to solve the world's dependence on oil. Sam Keane writes, David Hahn wasn't a sociopath. His disastrous adolescence sprang from a desire to help people. He wanted to solve the world's energy crisis and break its addiction to oil so badly, as badly as only a teenager can want something, that this Detroit 16-year-old, as part of a clandestine Eagle Scout project gone berserk in the mid-90s, erected a nuclear reactor in a potting shed in his mother's backyard. At this point in his scouting career, David was trying to qualify as an Eagle Scout, and he needed to earn a certain number of merit badges for that. As one of his elective badges, David decided to pursue an Atomic Energy Merit Badge, becoming the only boy in the history of Clinton Township Troop 371 to do so. Ken Silverstein writes, David was awarded his Atomic Energy Merit Badge on May 10, 1991, five months shy of his 15th birthday. To earn it, he made a drawing showing how nuclear fission occurs, visited a hospital radiology unit to learn about the medical uses of radioisotopes, and built a model reactor using a juice can, coat hangers, soda straws, kitchen matches, and rubber bands. By now, though, David had far grander ambitions. As his scoutmaster's wife and troop treasurer, Barbara, recalls, quote, The typical kid would have gone to a doctor's office and asked about the x-ray machine. David had to go out and try to build a reactor. As you do when you're a teenager trying to break the world's addiction to oil. So let's talk about nuclear reactors. How do they work? As everybody knows, atoms are made up of electrons, protons, and neutrons. Electrons are tiny particles that have a negative charge and that move around the outside of the atom. 
at the core of the atom is what's called the nucleus, and it's made up of protons and neutrons. Protons are big particles with a positive charge. Neutrons are big particles with a neutral charge, neither positive nor negative. The number of protons in an atom determines what element it is. For example, uranium has 92 protons, so it's element 92. But since protons have a positive charge, they don't like to be right next to each other. They repel each other, like when you hold two magnets together the wrong way and they put, try to push each other apart. That's why an atomic nucleus also needs neutrons to serve as buffers between the protons. But there's also something else that helps hold an atomic nucleus together. It's what's known as the strong nuclear force. And what is that? As listeners may know, there are four fundamental forces in nature that science has discovered so far. There may be others, and we've recently gotten some hints, though they're just hints, that there may be additional forces. The two most familiar forces that everybody will have heard of are gravity and electromagnetism. Gravity is what draws objects with mass together, and it operates on very big scales, like stars and planets and galaxies. Gravity is, though, the far weakest of the four forces, despite the fact that it runs the universe on the big scale. Electromagnetism, as the name suggests, is what's responsible for electricity and magnets. It's also responsible for light. Visual light is part of the electromagnetic spectrum. Electricity, or electromagnetism, is much, much stronger than gravity. It's 10 to the 36th power times stronger. That's a billion, 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 billion times stronger than gravity. And like gravity, electromagnetism has unlimited range. The reason that it doesn't dominate the universe is that the universe is balanced with an equal number of positive and negative charges. So it all balances out, and that's what allows gravity to dominate on the big scale. However, there is a theory known as the electric universe, which we will be discussing in a future episode. The other two forces, besides gravity and electromagnetism, are much less familiar to people. And the reason is that they only work on very small scales, like within the nucleus of an atom. That's why they're called nuclear forces. And one of them is stronger than the other. So we have the strong nuclear force and the weak nuclear force. The weak nuclear force is also way stronger than gravity. It's 10 to the 25th times stronger, meaning 10 million billion billion times stronger than gravity. But because of its limited range, it it doesn't it only affects things on a very small scale. The strong nuclear force is the strongest known force in the universe. It is 10 to the 38th times stronger than gravity. That makes it 100 billion, 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 billion times stronger than gravity. It's also 100 times stronger than electromagnetism. And the strong nuclear force is the other thing that helps hold atomic nuclei together. At the very small scale, the strong force is able to hold all of these protons and neutrons together, despite the fact that the positive charges of the protons are trying to push each other apart. So you have a kind of tug of war between electromagnetism, which wants to push the protons apart, and the strong force, which wants to keep the nucleus together. So then what determines who wins that tug of war? 
the size of the atom. If the number of protons and neutrons is low enough, then the atom's nucleus is small enough that the strong force will win and keep the nucleus together. But as the number of protons and neutrons grows, the atom gets bigger, and eventually it starts getting big enough that the strong force can't control things anymore. In that case, electromagnetism wins and the nucleus comes apart. To bend a line from the poet William Butler Yeats, things fall apart, the center, the nucleus, cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. Basically, when atoms get too big, they get wobbly and start to fall apart in a process we call nuclear fission. And that's how we get atomic radiation? It's one of the ways, but it can also happen other ways. For example, the weak nuclear force sometimes causes a neutron to change into a proton or vice versa, and that also releases radiation. By the way, nuclear fission was originally discovered with, by someone with the same last name as David. In 1938, the German scientist Otto Hahn discovered fission with his assistant Fritz Strassmann. I'm certain that in reading about nuclear energy, David Hahn read about Otto Hahn, and that may have been one of the things that led him to work on his reactor. So how do scientists and engineers use nuclear fission to generate power? One way radioactive atoms decay is by spitting out a neutron, and this is known as neutron radiation. In 1933, just a year after the discovery of the neutron, Hungarian scientist Leo Zillard was reading a London newspaper when an idea occurred to him. If an atomic reaction produced neutrons, these might hit other nearby atoms and cause further atomic reactions. That would lead to a chain of reactions, or what we now call a nuclear chain reaction. After Otto Hahn discovered nuclear fission in 1938, it was realized you could use naturally occurring nuclear fission to drive this process. This chain of reactions, or chain reactions, could lead, if you set things up right, to a set of reactions that would grow in size, with neutrons hitting progressively more and more atoms, causing an avalanche-like effect. If you let that process proceed in an uncontrolled fashion, you have a bomb. That's what a nuclear bomb is, a device that generates a runaway chain reaction so that everything explodes, releasing a huge amount of energy all at once. But you could also create a controlled chain reaction, one that doesn't go crazy and cause an explosion. Instead, it'll generate a steady release of energy that you can then extract and use for work. And this is what a nuclear reactor is meant to do. Nuclear reactors emit a controlled amount of energy, which is then captured and used to make electricity in nuclear power plants. The heat that the reactor generates is used to heat up a fluid like water, which can then turn steam turbines and make electricity. And as long as you've got fuel for your nuclear reactor, your power plant can keep making electricity. But you eventually run out of fuel. In a conventional reactor, yes. Eventually, the fuel decays into elements that won't sustain the reaction any longer, and you need new fuel. You also have the problem of what to do with all the spent fuel or nuclear waste that you have. In other countries besides America, what they do is recycle the spent fuel to get more use out of it. But here in the U.S., we've taken a different approach. Back in the 1970s, we had a president named 
Jimmy Carter. I uh, give you our 39th president, Jimmy Carter. Oh, come on. He's history's greatest monster. Yeah. In 1977, President Carter stopped American efforts at recycling nuclear fuel. In his book, Atomic Accidents, nuclear physicist James Mahaffey explains. On April 7, 1977, United States President James Earl Carter announced at a special press conference, quote, we will defer indefinitely the commercial reprocessing and recycling of plutonium produced in the U.S. nuclear power programs. The plant at Barnwell, South Carolina, will receive neither federal encouragement nor funding for its completion as a reprocessing facility, end quote. This announcement hit the nuclear industry like a two-by-four to the back of the head. The operating license for the plant was denied on presidential order. It turned out that the reason for this strange action, stopping an industrial plant from operating after a quarter of a billion dollars had been spent building it, was President Carter's fear of nuclear weapons proliferation via easy access to plutonium. He was not necessarily afraid that the United States would build weapons using plutonium as we were running two large federally owned plants to turn out bomb-grade plutonium by the ton. He was afraid of smaller countries using their own fuel reprocessing for this purpose, and he wanted to symbolically show them that if we, if we did not do it, then they should follow our example and not touch their nuclear waste. The rest of the world went on about their business, and there's no record of anyone giving a thought to the president's symbolic gesture. And since Carter's noble but typically naive gesture, we've been stuck with the option of burying nuclear fuel in the ground. But recently, that's become politically difficult, and we've just been letting it pile up without being buried. So that's American politics for you. We could be turning it into useful fuel, but instead we're creating an ever larger nuclear waste problem. But there's another solution to the problem of nuclear waste, which has the ability to extract virtually all of the energy contained in the fuel using what's called a breeder reactor. A breeder reactor takes nuclear fuel and uses it to breed even more fuel. That's why it's called a breeder reactor. So you get more fuel out than you originally put in. It's a kind of automatic recycling process that continues until the material virtually isn't radioactive anymore. According to Wikipedia, Breeder reactors could, in principle, extract almost all of the energy contained in uranium or thorium, decreasing fuel requirements by a factor of 100 compared to widely used light water reactors, which extract less than 1% of the energy in the uranium mined from the Earth. The high fuel efficiency of breeder reactors could greatly reduce concerns about fuel supply or energy used in mining. Adherents claim that with seawater uranium extraction, there would be enough fuel for breeder reactors to satisfy our energy needs for 5 billion years at 1983's total energy consumption rate, thus making nuclear energy effectively a renewable energy. So enough fuel for 5 billion years. That's enough for the rest of the lifetime of the sun, at least at 1983 levels. And a breeder reactor is exactly what David, our radioactive Boy Scout, set out to make. Here's how the Department of Energy pamphlet that David obtained describes a breeder reactor. Imagine you have a car and begin a long drive. When you start, you have half a tank of gas. When you return home, instead of being nearly empty, your gas tank is full. A breeder reactor is like this magic car. A breeder reactor not only generates electricity, 
but it also produces new fuel. You can imagine how exciting this idea was for David, and so he determined that he would make such a reactor in his mother's potting shed. And how did he go about that? He'd already laid the groundwork with his early experiments before he got the idea of making a breeder reactor. For example, he got a Geiger counter kit through the mail so he could detect radiation and he mounted it on the dash of his car so he could drive around using the Geiger counter looking for radioactive materials he could experiment with. He also wrote to a bunch of places for information about nuclear power, including the American Nuclear Society, the Atomic Industrial Forum, the Department of Energy, the Edison Electric Institute, and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. He also started using invented personas to disguise the fact that he was a teenage Boy Scout. For example, he would claim to be a physics teacher named Professor Hahn, who needed help finding information and resources so his students could learn about nuclear power. And I have to say, I'm not sure how he got away with this, because he really was a horrible speller. I, I don't know why the people he wrote didn't suspect that something was up when the letters they received showed that Professor Hahn didn't know how to spell multiple common English words. But he got what he needed and he found several creative ways to get radioactive materials. You'll recall from previous episodes that while the number of protons an atom has determines its element, the number of neutrons it has determines its isotope. For example, element 95 is called americium, so it has 95 protons. One common version of americium has 146 neutrons buffering those protons. So you take the 146 neutrons and add the 95 protons and you get the number 241. So the isotope that has this number of neutrons is called americium-241. To get americium-241, David decided to raid smoke detectors, which use a tiny amount of this isotope. He ordered around 100 broken smoke detectors for a dollar apiece, and he got help from a customer service representative to figure out where in the smoke detectors the americium-241 was located. He also liberated uh, liberated some smoke detectors <laughs> from his summer camp, as you'll recall. He then used the americium to make a neutron gun so that he could shoot neutrons at things and irradiate them. He then set out to find another radioactive isotope, this time uranium-235, which is the isotope that makes atomic bombs go boom. Mm. And to do this, he drove around with his Geiger counter-equipped car, hoping to get lucky. Not in the way many teenage boys do. <laughs> right. His Geiger counter eventually found him some pitch blend, which is a raw ore that does contain some uranium. He also rode off to a sketchy Czechoslovakian supply house and got some ore from them as well. Then, according to Ken Silverstein, David pulverized the ores with a hammer, thinking that he could then use nitric acid to isolate uranium. Unable to find a commercial source for nitric acid, probably because it's used in the manufacture of explosives and thus is tightly controlled, David made his own by heating saltpeter and sodium bisulfate, then bubbling the gas that was released through a container of water producing nitric acid. He then mixed the acid with the powdered ore and boiled it, ending up with something that, quote, looked like a dirty milkshake, unquote. Next, he poured the milkshake through a coffee filter, hoping that the uranium would pass through the filter. But David miscalculated uranium's solubility 
and whatever amount was present was trapped in the filter, making it difficult to purify further. Also, even if he had been able to isolate the uranium in his ore, he was missing a crucial step in the process. More than 99% of the uranium on Earth is uranium-238, not 235, and 238 is no good for bombs and reactors. Being able to separate the tiny amount of 235 from 238 requires a major manufacturing process. It took the Manhattan Project an enormous amount of time to extract enough 235 to make a bomb back in World War II. That's why we didn't bomb Japan earlier, because it took so long to get the uranium to make the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. So there was no way without this purification process that David was going to be able to get enough to make his reactor. So he started trying to get another radioactive isotope, thorium-232, which he wanted to bombard with his neutron gun and make uranium-233. According to Sam Keen, Thorium compounds have extremely high melting points, so they glow extra bright when heated. They're too dangerous for household light bulbs, but in industrial settings, especially mines, thorium lamps are common. Instead of wire filaments as wicks, thorium lamps use small mesh nets called mantles, and David ordered hundreds of replacement mantles from a wholesaler, no questions asked. Then, showing improvement in his chemistry, he melted down the mantles into thorium ash with sustained heat from a blowtorch. He treated the ash with $1,000 worth of lithium he'd obtained by cutting open batteries with wire cutters. Heating the reactive lithium and ash over a Bunsen burner purified the thorium, giving David a fine jacket for his reactor core. David was so successful in purifying thorium that soon he had purified it to a level 9,000 times that found in nature, and 170 times the level where the Nuclear Regulatory Commission requires you to get a license for it, which he didn't have. But now David had a problem. His neutron gun wasn't powerful enough to irradiate the thorium and turn it into uranium-233, the isotope he was currently after. So he decided to build a neutron gun with more power. You know, men, we want a job done right, and we want it done quick. What do we need? More power! Done right, more power. So David went out in search of the element radium to beef up his neutron gun. Now, radium, or element 88, is very dangerous. It had been discovered in 1898 by Marie Curie and her husband, Pierre. James Mahaffey explains in his book, Atomic Accidents, the Curies were among the finest scientists the world had known, and their dedication to task, observational ability, and logic were second to none, but their carelessness with radioactive substances was practically suicidal. Marie loved to carry a vial of radium salt in a pocket of her lab smock because it glowed such a pretty blue color, and she could take it out and show visitors. Pierre enjoyed lighting up a party at night using glass tubes coated inside with zinc sulfide and filled with a radium solution showing off their discovery to amaze guests. He got it all over his hands, and on swollen digits, the skin peeled off. Surely the cause and effect were obvious. Also, as Sam Keen notes, Marie had a habit of flouting convention. Once, while visiting an eminent male scientist's home, she ushered him and a second man into a dark closet to show off a vial of a radioactive metal that glowed in the dark. Just as their eyes adjusted, a curt knock interrupted them. One of the men's wives was aware of Curie's femme fatale reputation and thought they were taking a little long in there. 
Pierre Curie died in a traffic accident with a horse-drawn cart, but Marie Curie outlived him, and she eventually died of an illness caused by long-term radiation exposure. And the Curies weren't the only people harmed by exposure to radium. Back in the day, radium was used to make green glowing luminescent paint. Until the 1960s, it was painted on the faces and hands of clocks and watches so that they would glow in the dark. I'm old enough that I remember the old radium clocks and watches from when I was a kid. The reason they stopped using radium paint wasn't that the clocks and watches were dangerous. In part, it was because the women who painted them, workers known as radium girls, would lick the paintbrush tips to make a fine point on them. And so they ingested large amounts of radium with time. Radium shares the same column on the periodic table as calcium, which means that it has the same number of electrons on its outer shell as calcium does. That means when your body sees radium, it thinks, hey, calcium, I can use that. And so your body uses radium to repair microfractures in your bones, something it would ordinarily use calcium to do. And this affects particularly the bones of your body that are under a lot of stress, so they get a lot of microfractures, especially your jaw, which is constantly stressed by chewing. This leads, among other things, to a condition known as radium jaw, and it does not end well. Fortunately, David was not planning to lick his radium. Ken Silverstein notes, David began visiting junkyards and antique stores in search of radium-coated dashboard panels or clocks. Once he found such an item, he'd chip paint from the instruments and collect it in pill vials. It was slow going until one day, driving through Clinton Township to visit his girlfriend Heather, he noticed that his Geiger counter went wild as he passed Gloria's Resale Boutique, Antique. The proprietor, Gloria Jeanette, still recalls the day when he was called at home by a store employee who said that a polite young man was anxious to buy an old table clock with a tinted green dial, but wondered if she'd come down in price. She would. David bought the clock for $10. Inside, he discovered a vial of radium paint left behind by a worker, either accidentally or as a courtesy so that the clock's owner could touch up the dial when it began to fade. David was so overjoyed that he dropped by the boutique later that night to leave a note for Gloria, telling her that if she received another luminous clock, to contact him immediately. I will pay any sum of money to obtain one. And we should note that in this note, David spelled luminous without an O, and he spelled sum, as in sum of money, S-O-M-E. <laughs> so he really was an, a horrible speller. In any event, David now had his new, more powerful radium gun, and he was ready to irradiate bigly. By this point, David was 17, and he was now working on his breeder reactor. Through this process, he had taken some safety precautions. Sam Keen notes, For safety's sake, he acquired a dentist's lead apron to protect his organs, and any time he spent a few hours in the backyard shed, he discarded his clothes and shoes. His mom and stepdad later admitted that they'd noticed him throwing away good clothes and thought it peculiar. They just assumed David was smarter than they were and knew what he was doing. But... Even David started to get concerned. Was he close to building a nuclear reactor? 
No, David had never had remotely enough m- nuclear material of the right kinds, but he was successfully transforming thorium and uranium using his neutron gun. And the amount of radiation in his makeshift lab was growing dangerously. It was even detectable through concrete, and he could pick it up five houses down the street. Upon learning that nuclear reactors use control rods to absorb spare neutrons and control the reactions in them so they don't become bombs, David bought a set of cobalt drill bits to use as control rods, but they weren't enough. David eventually decided he had, quote, too much radioactive stuff in one place. So he decided to tear his reactor apart and scatter the radioactive material. That's when he got caught. We're now up to the early morning hours of August 31st, 1994, when David was found by the police, and he helpfully told them that the padlocked and duct-taped toolbox in his car trunk was radioactive. He was, in fact, transporting radioactive materials away from his home to get rid of them. The Federal Radiological Emergency Response Plan was triggered, and the relevant agencies of the government's bureaucracy started doing what bureaucracies do best. They started squabbling amongst each other about whose responsibility it was to handle this, and that squabbling took months. While the agencies were squabbling, David's mother decided she didn't want her house being condemned for being too radioactive. So she did what any concerned mother would do. She went into the potting shed, took out almost everything, and threw it away, meaning she put it in the garbage and the garbage men hauled it off. Sam Keen writes, Months later, officials finally stormed across the neighbor's backyards in hazmat gear to ransack the shed. Even then, the leftover cans and tools showed a thousand times more radioactivity than background levels. Because he had no malevolent intentions, and September 11th hadn't happened yet, David was mostly left off the hook. But things were not entirely rosy for David. Uh, Ken Silverstein writes, David went into a serious depression after the federal authorities shut down his laboratory. Years of painstaking work had been thrown in the garbage or buried beneath the sands of Utah. Students at Chippewa Valley had taken to calling him Radioactive Boy, and when his girlfriend Heather sent David Valentine's balloons at his high school, They were seized by the principal, who apparently feared they'd been inflated with chemical gases David needed to continue his experiments. In a final indignity, some area scout leaders attempted and failed to deny David his Eagle Scout status, saying that his extracurricular merit badge activities had endangered the community. But notice that they failed to deny David his status as an Eagle Scout, so at least he had that. Afterwards, David attended community college, but he dropped out. Eventually, he joined the Navy, and he was stationed on the nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, the USS Enterprise. Current assignment, USS Enterprise. But the Navy didn't let David work on the ship's nuclear reactor, where his interest and enthusiasm might have been put to good use. And they may have even feared to let him do that, lest, because he'd already been had a lot of dangerous radiation exposure. You might not want him near a reactor, mm-hmm. lest he get radiation illnesses. So instead, he swabbed decks and was put on KP duty, and he eventually left the service. So what eventually happened to him? Unfortunately, the story of the radioactive Boy Scout doesn't have a happy ending. Sam Keen writes, David drifted back to his suburban hometown and bummed around without much purpose. After a few quiet years in 2007, police caught him tampering with, actually stealing, smoke detectors from his own apartment building. With David's record, this was a significant offense since smoke detectors run on a radioactive element, americium. In 2007, when his mugshot was leaked to the media, 
David's cherubic face was pockmarked with red sores, as if he had acute acne and had picked every pimple until it bled. But 31-year-old men usually don't come down with acne. The inescapable conclusion was that he'd been reliving his adolescence with more nuclear experiments. According to Wikipedia, During a circuit court hearing, Han pleaded guilty to attempted larceny of a building. The court's online docket said prosecutors recommended that he be sentenced to time served and enter an inpatient treatment facility. Under terms of the plea, the original charge of larceny of a building would be dismissed at sentencing, scheduled for October 4th. He was sentenced to 90 days in jail for attempted larceny. Court records stated that his sentence would be delayed by six months while Han underwent medical treatment in the psychiatric unit of Macomb County Jail. Nine years later, in 2016, David passed away. He was 39 years old at the time, and his death was ruled accidental. It was due to a combination of alcohol, the allergy medicine diphenhydramine, and the pain reliever fentanyl. May God rest his soul. Amen. So that covers the story of the radioactive Boy Scout from the reason perspective. What can we say about it from the faith perspective? Part of the faith perspective is the moral perspective, although that's also interlocks with the reason perspective. From the moral perspective, it's clear that David needed more parental supervision than he got. There was no way he should have been allowed to embark on all the dangerous experiments he did, you know, blowing up his bedroom and things like that, much less try to build a nuclear reactor unsupervised. But before we judge his parents too harshly, it's important to remember a few things. Some kids do reckless things no matter what guidance they're given. Uh, After all, his father and stepmother did try to stop his experiments. They refused to let him keep doing them in their house. But since David's parents were divorced, he simply shifted to doing them at his mother's house. And since her mother and her boyfriend were not educated, they assumed David knew better than they did, and they let him go ahead. David's life may have taken a very different course if his parents had stayed together. In that case, his engineer father may have stopped David from doing reckless stuff, and he wouldn't have had another house to go to where he had less supervision. But we don't know the circumstances of the parents' divorce. One or both of them may have had good reasons for splitting up. So while we can say that David needed more parental supervision than he received, we can't at this distance assign blame to anyone. It could have just been an unavoidable tragic situation. Also, As he was now a young man, David has some share of responsibility for what happened himself. Uh, Now, the prefrontal cortex of the brain, the part that makes decisions and controls impulses, that doesn't finish developing in us until we're in our mid-20s. And David was still a teenager, but he was getting old enough that he should have some responsibility for what he was doing. But we can also have sympathy for David. We can and should pray for his soul We also can and should pray for all children who are hurt because of broken home situations, whether they could be avoided or not. More positively, we can say a few things. The universe that God created is awesome and filled with many mysteries. David had a passion for figuring out some of those mysteries through chemistry, and that's a good thing. Also, what he did, however misguidedly, was because he wanted to help people. Very good. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on the uh, mystery of the radioactive Boy Scout? The story of David Hahn is a mixture of both dark and light. On the dark side, David did reckless things that he shouldn't have done, and we should be thankful that more people weren't hurt. On the light side, he did what he did because he was thrilled by the joy of discovery and driven by the desire to help people. And that's a good thing to remember him by. All right, Jimmy, what uh, further resources can we offer to the listeners on this topic? 
We'll have a link to Ken Silverstein's book, The Radioactive Boy Scout, also Sam Keen's book, The Disappearing Spoon, James Mahaffey's book, Atomic Accidents, and the Golden Book of Chemistry Experiments on CD. We'll also have a link to Professor James Duane's book, You Have the Right to Remain Innocent, and why you shouldn't talk to cops and how you should express your right not to talk to cops. We'll have a link to David Hahn's page on Wikipedia, also an article that Ken Silverstein wrote for Harper's Magazine, and a link to that debate between Professor James Duane and a police officer about whether or not you should talk to the police. We'll also have, now earlier we played a clip from The Simpsons about Jimmy Carter. We'll have a link to that so you can see it in context. And we'll also have links to articles about recycling nuclear fuel and breeder reactors. Very good. Jimmy, uh, we we often take uh, mysterious feedback from listeners, and so we have some feedback on uh, the episode where we, we talked about private revelation. Our first feedback comes from Jarrett via email, who says, Great show. Two questions, though. Are declarations made by the church on specific revelations considered infallible? If they're not infallible, are the faithful free to believe in a revelation even if the church deems it inauthentic or unworthy of devotion? So for post-biblical revelations, when the church evaluates them and make a recomm- makes a, a recommendation, that recommendation is not infallible. It is only a prudential judgment that, yeah, it looked like this thing checked out or it didn't check out. If And so the faithful are in principle free to disagree. You need to be careful, though, if you're disagreeing by saying the church a revelation that the church judged inauthentic is really authentic. You need to be careful with that. It's one thing to say, well, I think they missed some evidence if they just said we don't have enough evidence to say it's authentic. Well, okay, so maybe, you know, but it doesn't contain anything contrary to the faith. Well, maybe you might disagree there, but you need to be much more careful about disagreeing if they say this thing contains teachings against the faith or if there's verifiable fraud involved, like that case in Texas recently where a woman who claimed to be a visionary was caught planting roses for her followers to find, thinking Mary had miraculously materialized them. That's just outright fraud. And if a if a reported apparition involves fraud or false doctrine, you need to stay away from it like the plague. All right. And then uh, on YouTube, On Vogue Massage writes, I feel like this episode is a primer for Medjugorje. Well, in a way, it it is. It's obviously more general than that. But I know a lot of people have, uh, you know, been interested in hearing a discussion of Medjugorje. I haven't wanted to do an episode on Medjugorje yet because this is currently under study by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, and they're making recommendations to Pope Francis. And they may have already made them. Uh, Some of the recommendations have been leaked, but Pope Francis has not announced anything. And so I hate to do an episode and then have it immediately become obsolete when they announce something. So I've I've have held off on that. But this episode does contain the principles that would be used in evaluating the reported apparitions in Medjugorje in the former Yugoslavia as well as, you know, uh, revelations reported anywhere. And in response to this episode, a bunch of people did ask about Medjugorje, some of them fans of Medjugorje, some of them not fans of Medjugorje. Um, We will talk about it more in the future at some point. Very good. Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? 
Well, since we talked about the four fundamental forces of nature that science has discovered, I've got a link to an article that talks about Hungarian scientists who claim that they found evidence for a fifth force of nature. Uh, They found a particle that is called X-17, and they argue, or they claim to have found this particle, and they further claim that this particle displays properties that would point to the existence of a fifth fundamental force. So this is new data. It hasn't been widely accepted, but it's been reported, and people are looking at it. And so, interesting, we may have just discovered evidence of a fifth force. Also, on the atomic front, we, a while back, apparently discovered a new kind of particle. It's called a D-star 380 hexaquark. And it's thought, as some people have proposed, that the D-star 80 hexaquark may be what dark matter is, because it would have some of the properties of dark matter. One of the things, so like if, let's say you're sitting in a chair right now or a car seat, the reason you don't fall through the car seat is because of the electrons in your butt or your pants or your skirt or kilt. They're negatively charged, and so are the electrons of the car seat. So they repel each other. It's like the put up, put two magnets together the wrong way, they repel. So that's why even though matter is mostly empty space, you don't fall through the car seat. It's because the electrons are repelling each other and keeping the two objects apart. Well, we mentioned that the nucleus of atoms the nuclei of atoms are made of protons and neutrons. Those are then in turn composed of three quarks each. They're triquarks. But this new D-star hexaquark is made of six quarks, and it, it would be electrically neutral. So it could pass through ordinary matter without being repelled. And so that's why they think it may be a dark matter candidate, and we'll have a link to a story so you can read about that. Excellent. So, folks, I want to hear from you, get your feedback. What are your theories about David Hahn, the radioactive Boy Scout? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page. You can send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or send a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? We're going to be talking about reincarnation, the claim that after we die, we come back to live one life after another, after another, after another. And feel free to put an echo on that in post if you want. (laughs) I will try to do that. So, folks, please, uh, if you can, share the podcast with your friends and even write a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast from to help us grow this community of listeners and reach even more people. Uh, You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest.